The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. On the line with us right now, fantastic new book out, came out on the 18th. Matt Lewis, he is a friend of the program, columnist for the Daily Beast, author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections. Uh, yeah, we are not too dumb to fail. That's been proven many, many times. <laughs> and uh, today he's joining us to discuss his new book, Filthy Rich Politicians, the Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing in on America. Matt, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me back. So um, what gave you the idea to write a book about this issue, about filthy rich politicians? Well, to be honest, it was because I'm a capitalist and (laughs) (laughs) I was I was actually approached by uh, a book agent, believe it or not, who had this idea to rank the 100 richest politicians in America. Interesting. That was the original idea of the book. It was 100 chapters. Each chapter was just going to be on wow. the 100 richest politicians and just how they made their money. And uh, that's how it started, and it evolved, I think, into a much deeper, more important topic, which includes you know, the original idea, but, but goes so much deeper into like, what it all means. And so uh, I, it was one of those just the stars aligned that I think we ended up writing a great book. Uh, we we got the book a few days ago. I've gone through most of it. I, I admit to skimming a few portions. Who is the richest politician in America? The richest politician in America is J.B. Pritzker, who's the governor of Illinois. Um, he's an heir to the Hyatt fortune. There are 11 billionaires in his family. And interestingly, when he was running for governor in Illinois, there were three billionaires running for the seat last year in 2022. <laughs> well, Amazing. You, you know what I love about Pritzker? I don't know if you've ever read the book Super Mob, um, but that family got its start <laughs> with mob financing. <laughs> well, that you know, it's like the Kennedys, you know? I yeah. mean, how, you go back far enough. I think we but, just call uh, those hard money loans today. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, 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 in Congress, it would be... Uh, Rick Scott, most people, and by the way, it's impossible to know the actual net wealth of most politicians because the they have ways of hiding it, yeah. and it's reported in broad ranges. But it used to be Daryl Issa. Right now, we believe it is Rick Scott, senator from Florida, who's the richest in Congress. Well, so why should this matter to the average voter. I mean, so for example, you know, as a 2020, I believe about half the members of Congress were had a median net worth of $1 million. Okay. And there's almost 22 million people in the United States that have that net worth now. Now, most of that's probably in their home, 
right? Something they've lived in 20, 30 years and a couple other things. I, I mean, half of California has. But, to. but it's still a lot of money. <laughs> I, I mean, but, uh, you know, if a population of 350 million, 21, 21, 22 million people are worth a million dollars. And, you know, and that seems like a lot of money, but we also realize that's a lot. And it's not in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you can't retire on that per se and just live on it. But why is this important for Americans and why should they demand some reforms on this? Well, so the book is about two things. It's about how the rich get elected and how the elected get rich. Mm -hmm. And I think both things are important. So right now, the average member of Congress is about 12 times richer than the median American household. Um, And so I think, you know, look, I don't begrudge rich people from, you know, for running for office. And in fact, there's some ways that I even admire that. Um, but I do think it's, it's, it seems likely to me that when uh, – and, and by the way, I should say that this, this phenomenon where the average member of Congress is 12 times richer than the rest of us is kind of new. Uh, it's, it's been going on for about three decades now. The gap has, has dramatically widened. And it just stands to reason to me that when our elected officials are that much richer than the rest of us, there would be some sort of a disconnect or just a worldview difference in terms of connecting with working-class Americans. But that doesn't bother me near as much as the second half of the story, which is the fact that once people get elected, they tend to get richer. And I think that is much more corrosive and damaging uh, than just having rich politicians. Well, it's true, though. If, If you have a certain amount of wealth, you have different concerns than somebody who's making $15, $20 an hour. I mean, that's fair, right? And so how can you really relate if you're all full of people who are highly successful financially? Totally. I mean, you know, because of, of, you know, I'm from a very kind of middle class, working class background. My dad was a prison guard in Hagerstown, Maryland for 30 years. And that's kind of how I grew up. And I live in West Virginia. I went to a little a little college in West Virginia. But I've been blessed to get to, you know, also know some you know, folks in journalism who come from maybe more privileged backgrounds than me. And they're some of the nicest, kindest, best people. Uh, But I'm telling you, they see they see the world differently than I do. And who could blame them? I mean, they've come from wealth. Right. Uh, They grew up in it. And I just think we're all formed by our experience and our and. And uh, it's impossible not to be at some level. Absolutely. We're with Matt Lewis. He is a columnist for The Daily Beast. He has come out with a new book that was released this Tuesday. You can get it at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever you find your books. Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashed In on America. came out this Tuesday, July 18th. All right. So... I want to ask a couple of questions because your book covers many topics, but who are some of the politicians that we have that are married into money or inherited great wealth? So you're the first person to ask me this question. I have a whole chapter or a whole <laughs> section on this. So thank you, because this is – so I, I ranked uh, – well, Business Insider ranked the uh, – they have a ranking of the 100 richest politicians in America. And so in the appendix of my book, I took the richest 25 – and then I personally did kind of a deep dive into them, how they made their money. And of the richest 25 members of Congress, uh, more than half, 13 of them, made their money through inheritance or marriage. The, um, the really old-fashioned way. Yes. <laughs> and I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Richard Blumenthal, his father-in-law, 
And by the way, it's usually fathers-in-law for what that's worth. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Richard Blumenthal's father-in-law is Peter Malkin, who basically owned the Empire State Building. Um, in fact, he was involved in a, in a fight with Donald Trump at some point over <laughs> control. There was a long time when he was the developer in New York, yes. the real estate guy. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there's a Texas congressman named Michael McCall. His father-in-law runs Clear Channel Communications. Oh wow! Um, Ro Khanna, who's a congressman out of California, who's starting to really make a name for himself. His father-in-law owns uh, Transmax, or started Transmax and also runs Murrah Holdings. Wow. And Mitch McConnell, a lot of people were like, how did Mitch McConnell all of a sudden get all this money? And there are, like, conspiracy sure, theories sure. about that. Cocaine Mitch. And, and, well, and by the way, who knows, right? right I mean, right. Maybe, maybe there's some <laughs> secret. But, but basically what happened is that, you know, Mitch McConnell is married to Elaine Chow, and her mom, when her mom died... You know, she inherited a ton of money. And how much? How much? How much she did inherit? How much did she inherit? Oh, we're talking. You definitely were talking tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he became incredibly wealthy overnight, and it looks super suspicious. But it's it's a matter of it <laughs> public it record directly correlates to when her. You know, it's 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 yep. money from her her father, but. But she inherited it when when the mother died. Andy Biggs is a ten million dollars publisher clearinghouse sweepstakes win is starting yes. to look more and more legitimate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, you know what's you know what's interesting is is Kevin McCarthy, uh, the current Speaker of the House, won the lottery. Um, oh, really? Won, I thought he did do sandwich yeah. shops. Did he really? Well, what happened is when he was very young, he won five thousand dollars in the lottery. And he used that money to buy like a deli, and that is what led him to Congress. So, oh, that's um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. but see, that's that's a little more of a that's more of an all American story. I got five thousand dollars. Yeah, and, that's you know. a great story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is a great story. It's sort of like um, oh, what's it? What's that movie Will Ferrell where he gets sent to prison for insider trading? <laughs> he's talking to us. <laughs> he's talking to his father in law and said, "I started this business all of myself with this computer." And a nine million dollar loan from my father, and <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people like that. Um, so, um, next to insider trading, and I want to get into that probably next segment. How do certain members benefit their family members, either via their connections or congressional campaigns? How uh, that happens a lot more than people think, and it always seems like a surprise to people that some kids on the payroll. And we've got two minutes here, but can you give a couple examples how that's happening? Totally. I'll give you. It's a by. By the way, it's a bipartisan book. Um, both, pretty much everyone's equally guilty of, of this. And uh, so we'll start with Ilhan Omar. You know, a member of the squad on the left. She di- has directed millions of dollars, millions of campaign dollars, to her husband's consulting firm. Likewise, Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, he became a millionaire from a book deal. Um, but his wife, Jane, he has paid a lot of money to her over the years, including hiring her to be his media ad, ad buyer when she had zero experience doing that. So she's basically getting a cut or a percentage of the money his campaign spends uh, buying TV advertisements. Did she on. do that during the presidential, too? 
Uh, that is a good question. I think most of this happened in the king, his congressional races, uh-huh. uh, like in Vermont, uh, senatorial races. But, you know, we're talking about a lot of money. And this one... A, a, a lot of money example. when there's no risk because he was never in doubt for any of those right. re-elections, right. Right? right? I mean, that's really right. kind of a... And Bernie Bernie didn't just pay Jane. I mean, he paid her, like, her children, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to Ron Paul, a Republican who has employed um, six... In, in 2012, when he was running for president, he employed six family members um, but he was a piker. He paid them a grand total of three hundred thousand dollars. So you know, that, nothing that's, compared. That's to, a little. That's literally not surprising, that, though, right? That, that, that's chintzy cheap. <laughs> on, he's um, hosing his family. Um, do you think that? Do you think Congress should crack down on this and just not allow you in campaigns to hire family members? You, we got thirty seconds. Yeah. We're gonna okay. Gonna head yeah. to break here okay. in just a moment. We're with Matt Lewis. He is the author of a great new book. Came out this week. Filthy rich politicians, the swamp creatures, latte liberals, and ruling class elites cashing in on America. You can find this at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your book. Go buy it. This is very important. We're gonna come back and talk to Matt a little bit about what reforms he thinks need to be done so we can clean this up. This is Chuck and Sam breaking battlegrounds. You can find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. We'll be right back. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. We're continuing on here in just a moment with Matt Lewis, columnist of the Daily Beast, author of Too Dumb to Fail, and his newest book, Filthy Rich Politicians. We're talking about that one today. But folks, if you're looking to get filthy rich, maybe you should give our call our friends at InvestYRefi a call. Go to their website, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com and learn how you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return on your money. That's right, 10.25%. Phenomenal rate of return, not correlated to the stock market. The stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. Your investment continues racking up the great interest and great returns for you. So give them, give our friends there a call. You can do that at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Matt, all right, so... So much to cover in your book, <laughs> but tell us what are reforms? If you're king for the day, and they said, Matt, you make these changes, and we start building a little trust back up in Congress again, what would you do? Okay, so the first couple we've talked about, I would the, the most important is to ban individual stock trading for members of Congress and their family. That is like by far the most important thing we can do because, because there's I, and, certainly well, I, I, the I appearance make one, of insider trading. Right, and I don't want to interrupt you, but you made a good point I listened to on a, po- a fellow podcast, which you made this point. It's not even so much about them increasing their wealth sometimes. It's that they prevent the loss of wealth. So let's use, Absolutely. for example, Senator Barr in North Carolina as an example, if you can share that with our audience. Yeah, this is really corrosive. Uh, so it's Senator, Senator Richard Burr, he just retired, but he was chairman of the Intel Committee. So like in that capacity, 
you know, he had access to all sorts of, of kind of classified briefings, classified information. And you, you might remember back in early 2020, like before most Americans realized how, how damaging uh, COVID-19 was going to be, like in terms of shutting down businesses and, and the economy, um, Richard Burr dumped hundreds of thousands of dollars of stock in things like Wyndham Hotels, the kinds of things that would be damaged in a global pandemic shutdown. But making matters even worse, then he picks up the phone and calls his brother-in-law. And within one minute of hanging up with Richard Burr, his brother-in-law calls his broker and dumps his stock. And so um, that is the thing. It's, it's not just that politicians are able to make money by virtue of what certainly looks like insider trading, but it's, it, it avoids the downfall. And certainly during times of change and crisis, that's when they can really uh, use information to dump stock and avoid like a major catastrophic loss. Well, and, and that has the, the the so as someone who does trade stock issues, the other side of that is if you dump at the start of something like that on an industry like hotels, like airlines, all of that, you're going to get that going two ways. You're going to avoid the loss, and then you're going to be able to buy back in at a low point, and you're going to mm-hmm. know when that low point is hit. Absolutely, and. And again, think of it. I mean, the average American at this point doesn't know how bad COVID-19 is going to be. We're being told it'll disappear. It'll be, you know, like a miracle will disappear or, you know, two weeks to slow the spread or whatever. This is when you had de Blasio telling folks, go out in the streets and celebrate the Chinese New Year, right? (laughs) I mean, it's it's literally coinciding with that moment. (laughs) And so that's a classic example, right? Our politicians are telling the public, don't worry, everything's fine. And yet, what are they do? What are they doing with their money? And so I think that is super corrosive. And that's by far, I would say, the most important reform uh, in the book. Let me ask you this. I'm a follow up. Two questions real quick. How many members have siblings or family members that are, are in the brokerage business or selling and trading stocks? Do you know that you were you able to find that out? I, it's in the book. I don't recall offhand. Okay. I do okay. know it is in the book. And I will, I will say this. I mean, in 20, so in 2012, Cong- up until 2012, it wasn't even illegal to engage in insider trading in Congress. Um, it's only been the last decade when that was illegal. Now the problem is policing. And I can tell you that the law, it's called the Stock Act, that, that made it illegal has, has done very little to alleviate the problem. There's always a loophole, right? There's always some loophole they'll yeah. find. Um, all right, what else would you do? What else would you reform? Well, we've talked about family. I would, I would ban the practice of hiring family or campaigns or official uh, congressional offices. If you want to volunteer on a campaign, by all right. means, I just, we just wouldn't pay you. Um, I would have a, uh, a 10-year moratorium on lobbying so that after serving in Congress, you can't go out and just start lobbying your former colleagues immediately. You would have a 10-year, basically, ban on that. Um, some people like Ted Cruz and AOC want a lifetime ban. I don't even know if that would be 
constitutional. Right now, it's, I think, two years in the Senate, one year in the House. But like you said, Shock, I mean, there are ways around it. There's this thing called the Dashiell loophole where politicians immediately start lobbying. They just don't register as lobbyists. They're consultants. And, they're consultants. Right. Right. Yes, they're, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and you know what you see this a lot, too? I mean, take Congress out of the equation. You see this a lot in legislatures. Legislatures. You know, you see people who couldn't rub two nickels together before they were elected to the legislature, which doesn't take as much money. Well, watch, and, and now they're lobbying and making six high six digits watch, a year. Watch every governor staff. If if they've yes. just won their second term, they get into year five, right? And mm-hmm. that whole staff disappears into lobbying land, and they're all rich by year eight. Is that something, Matt, you think we should push also on the state level? And hopefully, you know, I find out a lot of times if states start pushing something various states and it goes to the national level. Is that something that people should be pushing their state legislatures to pass? I would say definitely. I would I would strongly encourage that. And, you know, sometimes states can be the laboratories of democracy. And and if, if these reforms can begin there, that would be very healthy. What else? Okay, well, lobbying, banning stock, hiring kids and family on campaigns. Those are three great things. What else could be done? One of them, this is one that is not sexy, but it's book deals. Believe it or not, oh. you know, Bernie Sanders, who's a socialist, was asked, how did you become a millionaire? And he said, and like I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close to the real quote. He said, I wrote a best-selling book. If you write a best-selling book, you could be a millionaire, too. Uh, but, but the book deals are really—I mean, people are using their, their perch, their position, to become millionaires. But the worst part of it is the, the bulk orders, right? So you yes. write a book, but instead of real people buying the book— It's like the National Republican Senatorial Committee buys like 50,000 copies of it. And some of that money very well could trickle back into your pocket. Well, for for example, Bernie Sanders, I just looked it up, made $170,000 in book royalties in 2022, which almost matches his $174,000 congressional salary. There you go. There you go. And I don't think he wrote a book in 2022. No. He's still making royalties. And, 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 you know, the quality of most of these books, that, you know, they're ghostwritten or co-written, and most of them are just garbage, and you see these huge payouts, you know it's not for their incredible insight in that not in that uh, no tome. Totally, yeah. These are not, this is not Hemingway. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're with Matt Lewis, um, good friend of the show, daily col- columnist at the Daily Beast. He has come out with a new book. You can buy it now. Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Latte Liberals and what Matt dug in about that. I'm going to bring up Joe Biden also. You can do that as well. That's right. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone, continuing on right now with Matt Lewis, friend of the program, columnist for The Daily Beast, and author of the new book, Filthy Rich Politicians, Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals, and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America, available right now at Amazon or your favorite bookseller. Matt, as I read it, I did get to the section on the Bidens. And two things I think stand out is, one, they're cashing in less than most of of a lot of these other political families are. But two, quite frankly, Matt, the stupidity of their schemes with Hunter Biden and all this stuff, when there are so many ways that they could 
I don't want to say legitimately, but at least entirely legally make huge amounts of money. Did nobody in that family take notes from the Clinton Global Initiative? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think if you've seen the pictures of Hunter Biden recently, you know that uh, at least some members of his family are not operating based on, uh, you know, reason and logic. Um Joe Biden kind of has, it seems like. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I, I don't know if he's, quote, the big guy who's getting a cut uh, from the Burisma money or whatever from Hunter. But Joe, uh, according to his actual you know disclosure report, really wasn't all that wealthy compared to most of these politicians until he left the vice presidency. And then he had about three years where he really cashed in. He made about $15 million off of you know, the usual boring right. stuff, speeches, book deals, being a prof- adjunct professor, that kind of thing. Um, but the one thing that uh, is clear is that Biden has a long history of his family cashing in on his, on his name. And it's not just Hunter. It's James and Frank, I think it is, who've been doing this. And, you know, I found that way back in 1988, the first time Biden ran for president, he raised about $11 million. That's a lot of money in 1988. He raised $11 million, and 20% of that money went to the Biden family or companies that employed the Biden family. So this thing of him spreading the money around to his family has been going on for uh, 25 or 30, I guess, 35 years, something so, like yeah, that. Yeah, so in 1988, if you go and say what's the dollar value then, that's worth about $5.1 million today. Yeah. I mean, I, it's mean, re- I, mean it's, I mean, it's real money. Sam, what are your, what's your family money. doing for you? <laughs> I, I've got to run for something more significant than city council is what you're saying, Chuck. Yeah. Matt, Matt let me ask you a question. And Sam's going to pop some Biden, Biden stuff. But I want to ask you a question. I, list, I heard you on an interview, and I thought this was really interesting. And, uh, folks, Matt has just a, a wonderful wife. And the thing I love about Aaron is she is so dang blunt. And you were talking to her about maybe on a walk running for Congress. Would you tell mm-hmm. – I want people to understand really how hard this is to do, first of all, and why there is a certain wealth factor involved with it. I don't think they quite understand. Um, you know, I have a congressional candidate friend who's running right now. He's put three hundred grand in his race, and he just, he just said it doesn't seem like it's enough, and that's what I have. Well, that's what it is, right? Would you explain your conversation and why this yeah. is so hard and, and why we are getting a certain amount of people in office? Totally. And this was eye-opening for me as someone who's been, you know, in politics for decades. Uh, even for me, I had to kind of grapple with this realization. So but my, so my wife, as, as you know, Chuck, my wife is a, uh, a Republican political fundraiser. And while I was writing this book, you know, we went out for a walk and we were talking and I was, you know, I live in West Virginia and my congressman is running for Senate against Joe Manchin. Uh, and so we were walking. I said, you know, if things were a little different, maybe I someday I could run for Congress. And she's like, oh, well, you, you, you don't have enough money. And I said, like, <laughs> well, what are you talking about? Like, number one, I've been in, you know, I know a lot of people. I've been in journalism for a couple of decades and, and I've got a good network. And I'm like, number two, I'm married to a professional Republican fundraiser. Surely. I could run for Congress in West Virginia. And she's like, well, 
let me t- put it to you this way. <laughs> if I didn't know you and you approached me and you wanted to hire me, I would say, come back to me when you've either donated $300,000 or raised $300,000 from your personal Christmas card list. And then and only then would I introduce you to political action committees and high-dollar donors. And that's when it hit me that even I, who wrote on the Straight Talk Express with John McCain, <laughs> uh, could not win a congressional seat in West Virginia because I'm not rich enough. Well, you need better friends. Yeah, no. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chuck and I are not going to be able to help you that much there. Matt Lewis, we, we want to thank you again for joining us. We have uh, just about 30 seconds before we end the segment here. We really appreciate having you on. How do folks stay in touch with all of your work? Oh, awesome. Well, first, get Filthy Rich Politicians. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Matt K. Lewis and check me out at The Daily Beat. Perfect. Thank you so much once again, Matt. We always love having you on the program. Looking forward to the next round. Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Sam Stone. In studio with me today, Kylie Kipper, dragged reluctantly onto the mic once again. Back by popular demand. I'm just kidding. People love you, Kylie. They are always happy to talk to you. And you know what else makes people happy? Earning a really high rate of return on their investments. That makes almost everybody I know happy. And folks, if you haven't checked out our friends at investyrefi.com, you need to do that right now. Go to invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. The market goes up, the market goes down. Your rate of return stays the same. It is a tremendous opportunity, and we highly encourage you to check it out. So again, go on their website, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Now, our next segment up, we have a returning guest, someone we really enjoyed having on the program last time, Congressman James Moylan of Guam. And we have something actually – this is coming out on Saturday the 22nd. We record on the 21st. And, folks, the 21st is a very special day. July 21st is a special day in Guam. Congressman, tell us what's going on. Sure, I'd be happy to. Hi there, Sam, and hi, Kylie. And, and we, as we greet folks uh, from Guam, we say half a day. So half a day to you both. And half a day and to it, you as well, sir. Thank you. Uh, so we, I was just on the floor uh, today and gave a five-minute speech uh, for congressional record announcing the celebration of Guam's 79th Liberation Day. Uh, 79 years ago, uh, Guam was liberated and from during World War II. Uh, we also had a, a ceremony um, at the war, uh, let me see, World War II Memorial on July, July 13th here, uh, where we had um, a reef lane presentation on the monument at the War Memorial 
uh, with Guam on it. Um, we, this is a tradition that has been long ongoing for, for quite some time, and we've uh, joined in with our Guam Society of America, the oldest tomorrow group uh, in, in the nation. We have so many different tomorrow groups throughout the nation, but this is the first and the oldest. Uh, we also had uh, other members of Congress that were present. We had the Undersecretary of the United States Air Force, Christine, Kristen Jones, and we also had the Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, General Eric Smith, also do a presentation. So what, what's really happening um, is to remember this day uh, for a celebration uh, 79 years ago on July 21st, 19, um, 1944, Guam, after two years of occupation by the Japanese Imperial Army military, uh, the United States service members landed on our southwest part of Guam to liberate over 20,000 Chamorros and Americans from the occupation of Guam. Um, the actual the war in World War II, we were, uh, not many people know that Guam was actually uh, occupied by the Japanese uh, soldiers. And that day came as an invasion on December 8th of 1941. Uh, this is a special day for Guam because we were celebrating the Feast of Santa Maria Carmelin, and that's Guam's patron saint. And after people were coming out of church, uh, the sounds of bombs were just dropping and planes flying overhead, and and it drowned out what was a peaceful neighborhood and a good celebration of, of, of our services there. And that's what started the occupation on Guam. So we're very thankful, 79 years later, uh, uh, for the Liberation Day of Guam when the Marines came on back on July 21st, 1944. So that's our celebration, and we, we're very patriotic, and we're, uh, we're rededicating ourselves, of course, and Guam is even, even just as important then as it is even more so now with the Indo-PACOM situation and the Communist Chinese Party uh, threat for national security and our sister nations out there who are supporting us as well. Or with the U.S. taking the lead, it, that has, I mean, that is something that I think is so uh, almost incomprehensible, uh, Congressman, to any American. Right? To you, you're stepping out of out of uh, services or a celebration, and your country is being bombed around you. And there there have to be people there who who lived through that experience, who still have that direct memory. Um, yeah, and that has and, to in fact never leave you. Right, and and many of uh, war survivors still tell the stories, and we did have a war survivor here uh, for a celebration here in Washington D.C. at the uh, um, Pacific Memorial. So, but my mother was also one. So my mother w- had told me this story, and she was 12 years old at the time. Uh, she was coming out at the uh, cathedral uh, with her grandfather, and she she explained the story in this way that as they were ent- exiting. And they see the Japanese zeros flying over, and the bombs were coming on down. And she's yelling at her grandfather, to, "Grandpa, we gotta go, we gotta go. Let's let's run, run, run." He, as an older man, he said, "No, just leave me here." And she started. She had to pull him so they can run, run for protection, and, and run and hide and get back home to their family. So uh, then, my, with my mother's explanation, and and by the way, my father was in Pearl Harbor uh, at the time of uh, the bombing in Pearl Harbor too. Uh, so every everybody's generations and generations families have been affected, and the war stories uh, continue uh, to the brutality that was uh, taken against forced labor, forced marches, uh, beheadedness, uh, stabbings, uh, grenades, and in, in caves where where locals were were.
were killed and massacred, and it, uh, it, it was it, it was tremendous loss of, of an innocent lives. But that's why we celebrate the um, with the Liberation Day coming on, with the Marines coming on back, with uh, U.S. soldiers, with the United States Navy, uh, there to re reclaim Guam and give us our freedom back. And my mother was part of that as well. There was what they called the Meningan Force March, where the Japanese troops used the uh, local uh, residents as, as a shield as the Americans were coming onto the shore uh, and coming inland. Uh, the Japanese were marching that direction, but using uh, the local folks as a barrier. So, but, and of course, we, uh, you know, the U.S. is not going to kill innocent citizens. Um, and my mom would explain to me as she's coming up the hills in Meningen, uh, when they see the star on uh, on, on the uh, army, I believe it was an army tank or an army jeep, uh, then the soldiers would call them over and, and tell them to keep quiet, keep quiet, just come this way, come this way. And they felt so so relieved to see the uh, uh, the U.S., uh, the Americans, see the military there, and it was a joyful celebration. And that's why this con- this has continued in celebrating and memorying in memory of this uh, throughout the nation. We have Guam societies uh, that uh, we have calendars of event for just about every state where there's Guam residents and they establish their organization and they celebrate to, to remember those uh, that have died, uh, that have sacrificed, and if there are survivors to celebrate their, their lives as well for what we consider the greatest generation. Uh, Congressman, one of the things I, I think people know from you know books and movies like Unbroken a little bit, some of the experience that, for instance, American POWs went through, but I, I don't think they know enough about what the people of the occupied islands of the Pacific, including Guam, went through. You were just you know referencing some of it right there, uh, but that occupation was just absolutely brutal in every regard, and, and with with really little consideration for the humanity of the, the people of, of Guam or any of the other islands of the Pacific. Uh, very, very true, and, and not all were able to talk about it. Some more, uh, more chose to, to forget. Uh, my, my mother's father was imprisoned in, uh, Japanese, in, in Japan uh, as well. And then when he came back uh, to, the US, uh, to Guam after uh, the war was over, uh, he died shortly thereafter just from lack of, lack of nutrition. Mm. So it, it was very... It was it was brutal, and and the rules of war and, and Geneva Convention. There was not there's nothing like that. Uh, the forced labor that was placed upon the people, the beheading of of, of uh, local folks, uh, and and the fights that went on, and and what they had to endure, and you had to bow also to the Imperial uh, Japanese Army, and if you didn't, you're you're whipped and beaten. Uh, it was it, it was a sad day for those. Uh, uh, almost um, uh, two and a half years of occupation. And, and that's why when the Americans came back, uh, it was a great celebration. And since that time, of course, we, we've grown and we had, uh, we're considered per capita the highest enlistment in, in the nation with people joining the military because of our uh, commitment and, and the happiness and the joy that the United States came back to claim the U.S. territory, which was the U.S. territory at the time. So, there, there are few few populations on the planet that love America and the ideals of America like the people of Guam. Yes, and I'm I'm happy to represent uh, as the delegate here. And there's a couple of committees that we were able to get ourselves on, and one is the House Armed Services Committee, uh, which I, I play a great role in the readiness and also the personnel 
uh, part, and I focus on, on Guam and the Northern Marianas and, and the Indo-PACOM region. So we, we've had also, was able to uh, have, within the first quarter, uh, a congressional delegation uh, come through Guam. Second quarter, we just had, had another one, the, the HAS Committee, House Armed Services Committee, to include the chairman and several other members uh, of the House to come on up at, over an experience of what Guam is and what the role was and what it is now uh, for the Indo-PACOM region uh, to defend against communist Chinese uh, threat. And then we're going to have another one through the uh, Natural Resources Committee, uh, Department of Interior uh, Affairs, which I'm a part of also, and a subcommittee specifically regarding our COFA nation, um, Republic of Palau, uh, Federated States of Micronesia, Republic of uh, Marshall Islands as well. Uh, All these nations uh, joining in uh, so we can uh, protect uh, freedom and democracy, right, uh, and we, uh, against the Communist Chinese Party. So I'm very fortunate to represent Guam in these two committees that have a great impact in the Indo-PACOM region. And we're, I believe the United States will be here for a long, uh, long time uh, to ensure that the Chinese par- uh, threat is, is deterred by our show of strength with all our other countries that are involved with for democracy. And people, folks out there may not realize that as a territory, Guam, obviously, we're talking to their, their congressman uh, member right now. Uh, congressman, you don't have a vote on the House floor, but you do have a vote on committee. And I think most people don't recognize that what happens on the House floor is often kind of a dog and pony show, that the, the actual sausage gets made in those committees. That dictates what's actually going to be voted on and how those bills um, uh, you know, interact with, with the intent of the authors. Uh, exactly. Uh, and we just were uh, discussing the National uh, Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, which uh, is the, one of the biggest budgets for the defense of the nation. And so much billions of dollars going into the Indo-PACOM region. Uh, our influence there, we were able to double what we received last, uh, last uh, fiscal year uh, for, for the island defense. Uh, so that that's a great influence there. So in committee, yes, we do. This uh, and pardon me. Uh, sorry, we we had a little technical glitch right there. Apologize for that. Um, let's just keep okay. going here. I I, I want to okay. switch up topics just a little bit. We have only two minutes left. Um, are there any traditional celebrations? The traditional foods, like here, obviously July Fourth, <laughs> Independence Day. It's hot dogs, hamburgers, fireworks. Are there celebratory traditions around? Uh, Guam's uh, Independence Day, their Liberation Day. Uh, yeah, yes. Unfortunately, this year we didn't have it because we were hit with Super Typhoon Mawar. Oh. Uh, so we're still recovering from that. However, when we get back to our traditions, we usually have a parade with all the branches of the military, all our uh, department agencies, and um, a, lo- a lot of villages are also represented with floats. It, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful parade that uh, goes down what we, what's known as Marine Corps Drive. That's our main road on, on Guam. Uh, in addition, uh, people overnight on the sides of the roads, and they picnic because it's right next to the beach, and they barbecue. Uh, we love our fiesta. We call it fiesta food. We have what's called red rice, barbecue chicken, barbecue ribs, and our marinade is, is delicious. We have a sauce called finadeni, which is our hot sauce, and we have something special called chicken keleguin that 
Everybody loves. So Con- you Congressman, get, you I, I think we I think we need to check the weather and make some plans for next year to come yep. there. There you go. You're more than welcome, and you're invited. Please come on down. It's going to be the 80th, and that's where you should have your show coming out of. That'd be great. I, I think that sounds like an absolutely fantastic plan, Congressman James Moylan of Guam. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We really appreciate having you on the program. Folks, stay tuned for our podcast-only segment. You're not going to want to miss this one, Breaking Battlegrounds, back in just a moment. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to the podcast-only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. In studio with me today, the irrepressible. I haven't broken that out in a while. The irrepressible Kylie Kipper. She remains irrepressible, folks. She is our producer. She does a fantastic job. We've got Jeremy in the booth, as always, doing a beautiful job on all our audio. And on the line now, I saw this come out uh, a little while ago, and and it, it kind of blew me away. Uh, We have Senator Shannon Grove from California's 12th Senate District. Uh, Senator Grove has served in the U.S. Army uh, and had the amazing – it had to be amazing, Senator, the experience uh, in Frankfurt, Germany, of watching the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, She's an advocate for small business, school choice, the developmentally disabled farmers and families. Uh, And we're having her on today to discuss her proposed amendment to Assembly Bill 2167 – Senator, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on the program. Tell us what this amendment was first. I think this is news that with so much going on in the country, it escaped a lot of people. But it it really blew me away when I heard about your bill. I'm shocked California didn't have something like this already on the books. And then shocked and disheartened at the Democrats' response to it. No, I and I appreciate you guys covering this subject matter. I really do, and thank you for having me on. SB 14 was a simple solution that would just allow individuals who sell children for sex, sex trafficking, minor children, 0 to 17 in age group, it would make it a serious felony in the state of California. Right now, um, there's two subsections that deal with this subject matter, And selling a child for sex does not automatically make it a serious felony unless there's coercion, torture, violence, um, you know, all these different things that go along with it. Then it can be considered serious. But I want the actual act of selling the child to be a serious felony. And um, it it, it shocks. I mean, honestly, it. Hey, we're sitting here in Arizona. Obviously, we've had Republican leadership for a long time, so it's a very different environment. Obviously, every state's different. But this should be a no-brainer, right? I mean, so much of the problem, and we've dealt with the issue of of sex trafficking and child sex trafficking here quite a bit, obviously, with the border. Um, Arizona is also another hub of that activity, just like California is, unfortunately. But a lot of times it's very difficult to prove those – if you can prove any element of it at all. It's really difficult to prove those other elements. This has got to be just hamstringing prosecutors, this current law. It really is hamstringing prosecutors, and that's why that you know we work together with our district attorneys, including all, all the statewide district attorneys, with the exception of three or four, 
But um, specifically, Nancy O'Malley, the former district attorney of Alameda County, who established the HEAT unit, the Human Trafficking Exploitation Unit. And what happened is that that was the first uh, unit set up like that in the nation that was victim-centered. She's prosecuted over 850 cases of human trafficking. And one of the big issues that she has is that you can't convict these individuals because this particular bill, SB 14, the language is not on the books. When we first introduced the language, we wanted to make sure everybody was encompassed, that everybody in sex trafficking, labor trafficking were all included. But to get it out of the Senate, we had to narrow it to minors only. So we moved the football a little bit. We got a unanimous vote in the Senate. Forty senators in the state of California, all 40 voted aye, no abstentions, and no no's. Fast forward to the Assembly Public Safety Committee where the bill dies. I... It, it stuns me. What was to hear that? I mean, I it's it's sort of it's just gross. I mean, crank, quite frankly, it's just gross. They clearly killed it when they they figured it wouldn't draw much attention by killing it in committee. But my goodness, how how did what did they what did they say? How do these Democrats yeah. look at themselves in the mirror? That's what I want to know is what what is their response when you're trying to have these conversations with the people that you work with. So- yeah, no, so I did, I was, you know, they requested me, leadership requested me to meet with the chair of the committee after it was killed, and he wanted me to take an amendment. So let me explain the bill just a little bit more so people get a full grasp of it. If you sex traffic a minor child in the state of California and you get caught and you get prosecuted, you get sentenced to either um, 4, 8, or 12 years. Let's just take the maximum 12 years. With California's uh, criminal justice reform laws, you go to school, you go to classes, you're a good behavior in prison, you can get out in less than four years. So let's just take that scenario, which happens quite often. You get out in four years, and then you go back to sex trafficking a minor. That's when my bill kicks in and creates a strikeable offense that when you get busted on your second offense for selling a child for sex, then you have to serve your full 12 years and you have a strike against you, which could, if you continue your bad behavior, you could end up with life in prison. The chair wants me to take an amendment to allow the second offense of sex trafficking, not the first one. When you get convicted, you go to prison, you get out in four years, but then you get out again and you sex traffic or minor do um, or do another bad felony, something that's listed as a serious or violent felony. He wants me to take an amendment to allow the perpetrator to plea bargain down. I said no. So that's why the bill died. That that is that is Kylie. That is stunning. To We're both me. just sitting here shaking our heads. Yeah, my mouth is my mouth is on the bottom of this table right now because Can you even believe we're having this conversation. No, no, con- no, Senator. Uh, we're talking to Senator Shannon Grove of California's 12th Senate District. Uh, she proposed this bill that would have made it a serious uh, and violent felony to traffic minor children for the purposes of sex. That's a really narrow thing. I mean, trafficking any person should be a serious and violent felony. I, I like your original intent, but I understand cutting it back. You have to make a deal. I cannot comprehend the inhumanity that it takes to not move this out of committee. Well, I think it just, um, you know, with the, the media engaging the way they did and Californians raising up their voices and, uh, you know, with the, the the exposure that the bill got from dying uh, caused the Public Safety Committee to um, reverse their decision, with you know, 24 hours later. So it, it still is moving through the building. They are still pushing for amendments. You know, the Public Safety Chair voted for the bill. 
We got it out of public safety, and now he's on you know TV every time he turns around going, the bill is still flawed, I have to fix this bill. There's nothing wrong with my bill. It says that if you, it just simply says you can't, it's a serious felony to, to sex traffic or sell a child for sex. It's just ridiculous that you wouldn't be able to get this passed with flying colors. And what's interesting is, is that, like I said, every senator voted for it, including Scott Weiner out of San Francisco. The San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm talking about San Francisco, not normal California, but San Francisco. The San Francisco Chronicle even did an article, you know, against the chair's arguments like, like, you mean sex trafficking the minor isn't enough like that? They have to brutalize them. You know, there's a whole list of things that they have to do in order to make it a strike or a, a, a default to life in prison. But I mean, branding them with a branding iron instead of tattooing, all these different things in the details that will allow you to make it a fallback for the strikeable offense. I just want to make it a strikeable offense for sex trafficking a minor. Like, you shouldn't need all these other things. I think sex trafficking a minor, like my witness said it, and it's kind of gross, but you have to get this vision in your head. Grown men all over a 10-year-old child, <sighs> that in itself should be a serious felony. Okay, I, I'm doesn't glad. doesn't have to beat her. We are, folks, we are recording this uh, just before lunchtime, and I started the intermittent fasting thing, and I'm right now really glad that I don't start eating anything till noon because I think I would have thrown up right there. I mean, that's just. This is disgusting. It's the hardest bill I've ever. I met parents that whose daughter was trafficked, and I said, how did you find out? You know, let, you know, tell me your story. She got a text message, a video. She clicked on the video, and it was five guys gang raping her daughter. Oh. I met a, it, and it's. It's disproportionately does affect black women and people of color. If you look at Figueroa Street, the National Coalition of Human Trafficking down there says that um, 70% of the women that are in their shelters are are black or brown, and then also 55% of them on the streets are black or brown. So for them to say that this disproportionately affects black people, I agree with them in that portion, only they are concerned about the black people that could possibly go to prison for perpetrating these crimes against black women. And I, to me, I don't care what color your skin is. I, I don't care what, I was in the military, everybody's green, but I don't care what color your skin is. If you're sex trafficking minors, I, I do want you to go to prison for a long time. Yeah, I mean, this 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 hesitation on their part, it's, it's protecting the evil people uh, and not exactly. protecting the innocent ones. And, and who gives a darn about skin color? I, that just makes no sense at all. It, it, but when they can't make an argument on the substance, they always throw in race, and they always do that. They always throw in race. And then you've got these people out there doing the QAnon thing. If they can't make an argument on the substance, they try to distract from the substance. The bill, and I keep saying the bill is very simple. If you sex traffic a minor, zero to 17, you should go to prison. Well, and, and part of the backstory behind some of their opposition, I imagine, is what they've been trying to do to essentially legalize or decriminalize, however you want to put it, prostitution, you know, but they present it as as a choice, you know, for the, the people that are engaging in that activity. This is not a choice. I mean, th- this is not it's somebody not yeah, who's who's making a decision about their own life. This is somebody who's being abused in the worst way possible. You're exactly right. But the, when you get into the details, I guess you'd say the, the, the serious felony doesn't kick in when you traffic a minor because, you know, you just you have to imagine somebody going, come on, you know, like a family member, do this for dad, do this for mom, you know, whatever, a neighbor, come on, just do this one time. Well, they're not they're not beating her into submission. They're not. So it doesn't count. Right. It just doesn't count. So there are. 
there are it is very very hard to prosecute a serious felony in the state of California for this because the girls are scared they're young they they they're afraid to turn someone in and so basically they have to have all these additional things that happen once you sex traffic the minor and that's why I was trying to make it simple that that selling the child or sex trafficking the child should be enough alone by itself as a serious felony uh, I- I would agree, Kylie, in part because when you talk to experts about this, um, about sex trafficking, particularly of minor children, uh, you know, even regardless of the physical abuse, what they're using is mental abuse and mental torture to to keep these these young people in a position where they can continue to be exploited. They're they're tearing their mind apart. Yeah, and it'll never be recovered. Obviously, the life you know will what? never be the same. I mean, Kylie, you're absolutely right when you think about it. Even my survivors that have gone on to have families and, you know, that I have Odessa, Odessa Perkins, if you haven't watched her testimony, she really nailed them um, with her responses. But she was a, she was trafficked as a minor, um, went through the anger stage, the criminal stage, mm-hmm. the whole bit where she was, you know, didn't function right in society because of the trauma in her. And then you become a survivor versus a victim, right? Yep. And now she's an interventionist. She's a speaker, an author. She has a nonprofit where she rescues at-risk kids and detours at-risk kids and rescues people out of human trafficking. So there is a is a road to recovery, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't deal with this trauma that affected her as a child all of her life every single day. And the same with Jenna McKay, um, who does the Jenna McKay Foundation. And you know what's interesting about these two individuals? Odessa's a, a black a black woman trafficked as a child in a in a poor socioeconomic disadvantaged neighborhood. But Jenna McKay came from a Christian home, no divorce, got a full-ride scholarship to Vanguard University, and was lured out of that by someone who said they loved her. She fell in love, she thought. She had been dating for a few months. He asked her to go to Vegas, knock on the door when they get to Vegas. They exchanged money, and men came in and raped her. Wow. So there's different stories in this human trafficking realm. And it it takes an enormous amount of courage to be able to come out and tell those stories, but it it takes as much courage in the moment to be able to go and tell that story to police. And it it just sounds like this, you know, anything you do that adds barriers that makes it more difficult for them to have the the resolution in part, I guess, of having their uh, assailant be actually placed in bars and, and behind bars and face real penalties. I, that has to be part of the healing process for a lot of them, right? Is is seeing justice actually happen, and this is this this hesitation by some California Democrats is really denying that. It really is, and that's a perfect way to explain it too. So we're trying to remove barriers. Um, there's barriers now to testimony, which you just said. So this bill would remove barriers. It just the act of selling the child for sex would be a serious felony. So there wouldn't be any barriers where you have to meet a certain level or did they beat you? Did they sodomize you? Did they, I mean, all these crazy things, right? So just the act. So we're trying to remove the barriers for these, these kids to testify. Um, so that's a very good way to put it. Thank you for phrasing it that way. Fantastic. Congress, uh, Senator, anything else that we should be focused, you know, people should be paying attention to around this uh, upcoming hearings or anything like that? And and then secondly, how can they support you in the work you're doing? Because I, I got to say, especially in California, you're 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 swimming upstream in a big way. Um, but they need more voices like yours who provide some balance. 
Well, I appreciate that. So the, the bill did get out of public safety. It quieted the media down a little bit. So now everybody's off on their what they call summer break. We come back on August 14th, and the bill will go before the Appropriations Committee in order to get through one more committee. The opposition, the Democrats that killed the bill originally in public safety and then re-voted for the bill two days later um, or a day and a half later, um, they are still saying that I they are going to fix this bill and they're going to make me take amendments. There is nothing to fix in this bill, so please stay engaged in the process. You can follow me at uh, Shannon Grove CA on Instagram, Shannon Grove CA on Twitter, Shannon Grove CA on Facebook, um, or Senator Shannon Grove on Facebook. But um, and we'll post the you know the day that the hearing is going to take place. We'll keep everybody updated on social media. So please stay engaged and everyone pray for this process because it really is just just a mess the way that the California state legislature operates. And then also um, you know participate in the hearing process. They still allow call in. Um, you can call in. You can write in. You can um, you can just participate to support the bill. So thank you. Folks, we have a lot of listeners out there right now who are listening to this who are in California. Make your voice heard. You know, make stand up, exercise your right as a citizen. I think that's incredibly important in this case. They need to hear from voices outside the political process um, and where people really stand. Because I, I don't see uh, – Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Senator Shannon Grove, I don't see anything at all that needs to be amended in this bill this needs to pass. I agree. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me and get that the message out there. I really appreciate it. All right. Fantastic, folks. Remember to tune in every week to Breaking Battlegrounds. We're on all your favorite Salem Network stations, and you can also download us wherever you find your podcasts, Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, I think we still even post to YouTube, although I've we never <laughs> I've never actually been on our YouTube site, Kylie, to find out. It's up. Uh, it's up. Okay, folks. <laughs> Make sure you're tuning in. That's how we keep the lights on here in this studio. That's how we pay the bills, and that's how we continue to bring you stories about what's going on around the country that maybe aren't getting enough coverage like this one. Uh, Again, thank you to all of our guests today, and particular thanks to our final guest, Senator Shannon Grove of California. Uh, It has, as always, been an enlightening and, and not always easy journey here with Breaking Battlegrounds today, but we appreciate you sticking with us. See you next week.